My name is Andy. I'm the pastoral intern here at the bridge. Um, and so, you know, obviously, you know, whenever you meet someone new, they always ask you what you do, where you work, that sort of thing. And so when they find out I work at a church, they ask me what I do. And the first thing I tell them is that I lead worship. And if they're a Christian, I assume that what they hear is that I like play with the band and, you know, lead, lead the music on Sundays. Um, and so actually the passage we're going to be looking at today uses the word worship in some form 10 times. It's eight verses long, but it uses the word worship 10 times. And the interesting thing is no, there's not a single mention of music in this passage. Um, so needless to say, I'm sure, you know, even if you haven't looked at this passage before, um, it'll be in John 4, it would be safe to bet that since it's talking about worship so much, it's probably at least going to give us a definition of worship, if not also tell us, um, you know, how to worship, who to worship, why to worship. Um, and so uh, the passage we're based out of in John 4, we're, we're only going to do a small chunk. John 4 is actually a pretty long chapter um, because this story actually has so many kind of distinct elements and themes that we really unfortunately don't have the time to dig into. Um, but I really love this section. Um, and so because context is important for understanding any part of a story, this really is a story. Um, I just want to briefly summarize some of those elements uh, before we dig into uh, the, the actual part that we're going to study today. Um, and so John 4, it's um, from the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel account. Um, and so at the, the beginning of this chapter, uh, John is describing how Jesus is journeying through the country or the nation of Samaria. Um, and Samaria is basically uh, this, this, um, this country that used to be occupied by Jews, uh, but at some point the Assyrian Empire, they actually came in and conquered them and kind of booted them, most of the Jews out. But some Jews were allowed to stay, um, and over time... Uh, they mingled, and so they shared culture, they shared uh, even religion, and obviously heritage. Um, and so, um, as I was thinking about this earlier this week, I, I realized, like, if you're familiar with, like, Harry Potter, to, d to describe the relationship between Samaritans and now present-day Jews at the time of this story, it's kind of similar to, um, like, wizards and mudbloods. I don't know if anyone's a Harry Potter fan, but basically, for any witch or wizard who has one parent who's magical and one parent who's non-magical, they're considered a mudblood, like a half-breed. So it's, you know, it's, it's, an, it's used as a slur. Um, and so it really is, it, and that very kind of is, I would say, a modern-day, or I guess a modern-day fictional uh, parallel to kind of the tone of the relationship, at least that Jews had with Samaritans. And so um, Jesus is in this place. He's a Jew. He's in this Samaritan land, so it's like enemy territory. Um, and he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And there's a lot of stuff that happens um, between them before we get to this passage, but basically he has this conversation with her. And through this conversation, she realizes that she's talking to a man sent by God. Um, and so um, she, as soon as she says that, she starts talking about worship. And so we're going to jump in at that point in this story. Um, but before we do, I'm going to pray, and then we can do that. Um, God, uh, I just thank you so much for, again, this, this beautiful day, this beautiful weekend. Uh, thank you for a little bit longer weekend to just uh, relax, God. I thank you for uh, Sunday mornings that you give us, the space that you give us, uh, the time that you give us, the ability to get here, God. Um, I just thank you for each person here and um, just the part they play in this community, God, and just uh, the, people that, the people that you've made them to be. Um, and so I just pray now, God, that this would be a, a time where you show yourself to us, that you would draw us closer to you, um, that you would draw our, our affections deeper towards you. Um, because you are worthy, God, and, and I just pray that you would reveal that to us uh, through my words, um, and 
whether I'm able to speak it well or not speak it, uh, not speak it clearly, God, I know that you can, you can do that. And so I just pray for your help now um, and pray that you'd be with us. And so we pray these things in the name of your son, by our spirit. Amen. So um, we are going to jump in at verse 19 of John 4. So if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles. Uh, there should be Bibles underneath at least a chair close to you, if not under you. And that's also going to be on the screen, so you don't have to turn to a physical Bible if you prefer that. Um, so I'm going to start uh, at verse 19. So this is after Jesus has already talked with this woman a little bit, and she's realized she's talking to a man of God. Um, so starting at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So, um, I, uh, I'm, I, in case you didn't know this, uh, the New Testament was originally written in ancient Greek. Um, Greek, was, even though obviously like they're in Israel and stuff like that, Greek was kind of the academic language of the day. And so um, I actually am I'm in a master's program right now. And so this past, like a few weeks ago, I just finished my second semester of five total semesters of ancient Greek. Um, and one thing that I have realized in two semesters thus far is that it's really hard to translate from one language into another, in the sense that you really can't fully capture and convey all the nuances of even a single word um, from one language into another. And so I had mentioned earlier how the word worship appears in this, in this eight verses uh, 10 times in some form. And each of those 10 times is from the same verb, uh, it's rooted out of the same verb. Um, and it's, it's the same Greek verb, and it's pronounced proskuneo, and so I think right there. Hopefully that kind of helps. Um, obviously, I don't, I don't expect anyone to read the Greek at the top, but the, the second line, that's kind of like the phonetic pronunciation as best as I could kind of uh, play it out. So proskuneo, and it, it, and it, it means I, I worship, but more specifically, um, linguists have determined that it, it's, it's referring to the physical act of bowing in reverence. Um, and obviously, usually that means to a person, but sometimes that could mean even to, you know, like an inanimate object, like an idol of some sort. Um, it's not, you know, specific to a religion. Um, but and in case it helps you, um, in case you're familiar with some other parts of the Bible, it's also used, in, for example, in reference when the three wise men uh, find baby Jesus in the manger and they, they bow down and worship him. Um, and also when uh, Jesus is in the desert for 40 days and Satan tempts him um, and, he, and Satan demands that Jesus worship him. So those are just some other examples if that gives you a little bit better sense of kind of what, that, what this word kind of connotes and carries. Um, and I realized as I was studying this that the, even just the act of bowing is very foreign to Western and American cultures. Um, but uh, for me, like as, as a Korean American and a lot of Asian cultures, bowing is actually a pretty common thing, at least tradition, traditionally, historically. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm third generation, basically, so like my family is not like 
very typically Korean. Uh, like we don't observe a lot of the traditions. But like you know, we I've, we've been in America for I don't know, 40, 50 years, I, something like that. And so um, yeah, but one of the few traditions that we do observe on a on a yearly basis happens at New Year's. And you know, you, you've probably heard of like Lunar New Year being a a big deal in general for a lot of Asian cultures. Um, so for us. On New Year's Day, what we'll do is, along with having really delicious uh, dumpling soup, um, we actually, the me and my siblings, will bow to our grandparents, um, and and it's done to wish them good health. It's it's not you know like obviously you know certain certain connotations cultures may actually worship ancestors, but for our family, it's it's just a it's a it's a symbol of respect, and so it's it's very. I, I want to show you this to you because it it might even seem alarming, but it's very. It's, it's, it's very much bowing. We, we go, go down like this on both knees, put your head, uh, hands to your head, forehead, and you go all the way down like this. And, and I mean, if it matters, you say, Anyway, it's basically wishing, wishing your uh, elders good, um, good, good health um, and good fortune for the year. Um, and you know what the great thing about it for, from our end is that uh, we get a lot of money from it, actually. So uh, I always felt like it was like I got the better end of that deal. I guess, you know, they, they, they appreciate the respect and I appreciate the money. So, um, you know, I guess it's a, a, a two-way street. Um, but, yeah, so, again, obviously I, I don't think anyone here is Korean. Um, I don't know. I, maybe Denise. I don't know if you're familiar at all with, like, bowing to elders. Um, but, yeah, bowing, the, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it um, to a degree. Um, and while I, while I do think that, you know, by and large, bowing is kind of unfamiliar in America, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, um, I think you might be a little more familiar with it. Um, I, I personally have not really followed the show. Of course, you know, know about it, but because, you know, like the, se the series just wrapped up, you know, what was it, a week or two ago, um, I guess just being very aware and hearing all like the controversy and all the, the outcries about how it ended. I don't know if anyone's followed the show, but um, if you have, um, I've, been, I've been kind of reading up on it and watching clips about it just to kind of get a better sense of like why this has been so compelling, why people are so invested. Um, and so as I was watching a lot of these clips, this phrase kept coming up, bend the knee. And it's used um, in reference uh, when characters are talking about submitting to the, the, the crown of another, the, the, the kingship or the queenship of another person. Because um, this show is all based all around kind of like this jockeying for the throne, really. Like, that's called the Game of Thrones for a reason. Um, and so, you know, obviously they're literally talking about like bending the knee before somebody um, and swearing your, your loyalty, your allegiance to them, recognizing that they are a figure of authority um, and you are actually submitting yourselves to their authority. Um, and so I think proskuneo, that's used in this passage so many times, um, it carries a, it's a very similar connotation. The act of bowing is literally lowering yourself before somebody. It's a very vulnerable position. Um, and, it's, and, it, and it's meant to, con it, 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 when you bow, theoretically, if you're not doing it under coercion, you're doing it because you, you truly recognize that someone is worthy in some way. Um, and maybe that they even have authority. Um, and, you know, in the case of bend the knee, it's, you, you're actually personally submitting yourself to that authority. Um, and so proskuneo is <coughs> clearly Jesus' word for worship here. It's his definition of worship. Um, and, and, and in the sense of, like, worshiping God then, um, it's that we revere God's authority and we devote ourselves to his purposes, his, his causes, um, like, as a king. Um, and, you know, I think that's where all the, you know, like, descriptors, the descriptions of Jesus as king and as Lord really help and kind of make this make more sense. We are truly... Um, in our worship, devoting ourselves in allegiance to God. Um, 
So um, now let's jump back to verses 20 and 21. I'm going to read that again. Um, so this is the, the Samaritan woman speaking. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Um, so what's happening here is the Samaritan woman is pointing out some differences between Samaritan culture and J Jewish culture. And one of those religious differences is that they had different literal places where they were supposed to worship God. And so this encounter that Jesus and her are having is actually at, in that general area. It's called Mount Gerizim. Um, and and I, I assume they have like a temple somewhere in that, on that mountain. Um, and, and she's pointing out that the Jews, they worship in the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and so, you know, it, it, I'm sure everyone's familiar, a lot of religious traditions have different, you know, places that have been designated um, as like holy places for worship. So, you know, there's synagogues, there's mosques, there's temples, there's cathedrals, what have you. Um, and, and, and as this woman is pointing out, um, before the time of Jesus, God had instructed his people to worship in one place. Um, and so um, after, you know, the story of, uh, of the Jews being freed from Egypt, they're wandering the desert, and God instructed them to, wherever they set up camp, set up what they, was called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is, is kind of a series, uh, it's like a wall, and then a concentric series of tents. Um, and that was where the priesthood of God's people could come and offer the sacraments of worship and repentance and gratitude. Um, and then later on, God commissioned them to actually build the, the permanent temple. Um, so, um, you know, but, and it's still very similar kind of uh, structure in terms of order, like series of tents, where the closer in you get, the more holy, so to speak, it is. And the fewer people can actually be there. Um, and so for hundreds of years before Jesus came into the picture, um, there was only ever a single location on earth where God's people could worship him. Um, and they had to do it through intermediaries. They couldn't really do it themselves in a way. Um, but what's so great and so interesting here is that in this passage in John 4, Jesus is promising to the woman. He's actually promising that soon these old ways in which there's a lot of dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews, um, they will be irrelevant in a sense. Um, and that engaging God will soon be much more accessible um, Jesus says, neither here nor there, neither here on this mountain nor in the temple um, in Jerusalem. And so, um, he's, Jesus is redefining, he's totally reshaping their very concept and definition of what worship is. Um, and, it's not, and it's no longer dictated by the place, and therefore, or dictated by the time, or even the method. Um, but he says, worship in spirit and truth, proskuneo in spirit and truth. Um, and before I go further, I do want to give caveats because it's easy to kind of like overinterpret this and think, oh, so Jesus is saying we don't need, we should never go to certain places and we should never do it in certain ways. And he's definitely not prohibiting anything. He's, but he's very much expanding the definition. In fact, um, you know, like other places in the New Testament, we actually see God uh, commanding things like gathering together and singing together. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 is going to be up here. Um, and, and it's very much, and literally, I think verse 25, it warns against, ne against neglecting to meet together. Um, so it's very important that Christians do get together. God's people do get together um, at times. And then Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, they won't be up there, but they both use the same phrase, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs as an instruction to God's people. Uh, that's what God's people are to do with one another. So 
Um, you know, in case you were worried that it's like, oh, we should no longer meet here or, I don't know, even at like First Baptist or, you know, some other big church that's more, more, more looks more like a church. Um, or if you're afraid that, you know, Hillsong and Chris Tomlin are off limits now, it's not the case. Um, but again, Jesus is expanding the, the definition of worship. Um, and, there, and there really are no commandments in the New Testament to, to Christians about where they're supposed to meet and like how beautiful the, the, places, uh, the places they meet are supposed to be. Um, so now, so Jesus redefines it as worship in spirit and truth. So let's dig into that for a second. Um, uh, so the very next verse, actually, so as I was studying this, this was kind of the, one of the points I got hung up on. I'm like, worship in spirit sounds like a really, I mean, like a meaningless term in a way. Like I couldn't, re- like it was hard to figure out, like what exactly does that mean, worship in spirit? Um, and so as I was reading a, a commentary, they, one clue that really helped was that the very following verse after 23, so I'll, I'll read verse 23 and 24. Um, Jesus is saying, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So this is verse 24 now. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so one of these commentaries was saying that God is spirit is a, is a direct contrast to the idea that God is, is, is physical. He's something that you can measure and contain. Um, and so when, and kind of retrospectively looking at this idea of what does it mean to worship in spirit then, um, again, all these physical manifestations of worship, going to a temple, offering sacrifices, those aren't nearly as important as the intent behind them, the intangible part of it, the, the, the heart posture that's there. Um, and so uh, um, Jesus is saying that true worship is not defined to God based off of specific forms, specific places, specific times, um, but that it is uh, based off, off the heart, the heart behind any word or action like that. Um, and so that's, I, I think that's, a, that's, as, that's as concisely as I can summarize the idea of worship in spirit and then worship in truth, responding to or rejoicing to the things that God has revealed to be true. So I think that might be a little simpler, hopefully. Uh, and so overall, Jesus is, has expanded the idea of worship to God. It's possible, therefore, in any place and at any time, um, even doing anything, um, if it is done in spirit and in truth. Um, so, you know, practically speaking, it, mi- it might seem weird at first to think about it, but things like praying together or, uh, you know, h- maybe helping a friend move or even sharing a good meal, those can be equally worshipful acts as maybe even more worshipful than the singing that we do, the, ga- the things that we do as a collected group of, of Christians. Um, and, and I guess a more practical example from my own life that I can use to, I guess, validate that point is, um, you know, I, I actually, so I've been leading worship, you know, l- uh, leading Christian songs, you know, in a gathering of, of Christians uh, for eight, oh man, a long time, <laughs> eight years, I think. Uh, I started in college, my freshman year of college, and I, I didn't have a theology of worship, so, you know, I, was th- I thought I'm just there to play the music and play it well. And really, as I, I, I began to realize over time that I was up there trying to sound good and trying to impress people. Like, that was my motive, which is obviously not at all based around God. It's not based on who he is. It's not trying to give him glory. It was about me, how I looked, um, and how people saw me. And so, 
obviously, I would say that for them, like in, in a lot of ways, what I was doing then was not that worshipful. But vice versa, something out totally outside like a typical like gathered religious setting. You know, I was in Colorado last summer um, uh, for a, you know, a good friend's bachelor party, and we were out in the mountains. And I mean, there was just so many times where I'm just sitting there and I'm just floored in awe and just grateful that I get to experience and be a part of God's creation. I mean, I, I, words cannot accurately describe the pictures, you know, the things that you get to see and, and experience there. So I guess this is a plug for Colorado tourism. You should go, you know, um, if you haven't, like, especially Houstonians, there's no mountains here. So it's like, it's hard to, like, if you've never been on a mountain, you know, get to like look down into the valleys below, it's, it's something else. So like, to me, that, po- that heart posture of just awe and gratitude to God, that was more worshipful than me being up here singing songs because I wanted people to, you know, like, feel good and, like, think better of me. Um, so, you know, again, so just to reiterate, Jesus redefined worship. He reframed the whole concept of what worship is, what it looks like. It's, it's about the heart. It's about the spirit and the truth behind it and not nearly as much about how you do it, when you do it, where you do it, with who you do it. You can do it by yourself. You can do it together. You can do it, you can do it here. You can do it at home. You can do it on the street. Um, so um, I think that's, that's really uh, just, in, in a way, freeing to know that. And it's, it's also daunting um, because we're going to, now I want to move into uh, this, this, this phrase, the hour is coming. Um, Jesus used it twice. I'm going to read verses 21 and 23. Um, in verse 21, Um, It says, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then the second time the phrase comes up, he adds to it. Uh, Verse 23, Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And so, I mean, it's really easy to glance over that, you know, it, you know, it doesn't seem like it necessarily on the surface carries much weight, but especially the second time, to me, that sticks out, because it almost seems like a contradiction. Jesus is saying the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Um, and so, again, it seems initially contradictory, but really, this is actually a reference to two periods in time. So the hour is coming um, several times Jesus references his hour, and that's the hour when he actually is crucified on the cross and he dies. He gives up his spirit and he literally is dead. Um, and that's an important moment because if you read um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see, um, you'll read about how as soon as Jesus died, one of the cataclysmic events that happens in the aftermath is that the temple of the curtain, or the curtain of the temple, the holy of holies, the centermost place of the temple, which is literally the high priest was the only person who could go in there once a year. Um, that's where the presence of God dwelt on earth. That thing broke in two. And so Jesus is referring to, A, that hour when the presence of God would actually be freed from this one small place on earth. Um, and so it's very symbolic. It's symbolizing accessibility to God. Um, and his pervasive presence, the opportunity for people to engage him wherever they are and not, not through one mediator once a year. Um, and so then the second part, um, the hour's coming in is now here. And that's, a, that's an invitation. He's inviting this woman, and by proxy, he's inviting us um, into a very immediate call to action. Um, and it's not only is it an immediate call to action, but it's an ongoing action. Um, 
So for me, I, I grew up in church. I don't know if, I'm sure a lot of people may have in here have grown up in church, but, um, you know, there was a time in my childhood where I thought that I would wait to become a Christian, to, like, put my faith in Jesus until I reached my deathbed. Um, and my subconscious rationale, of course, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it at the time, but my rationale, I guess, was that um, I could live whatever life I wanted until I got to the very end of my life, and then, essentially, I'd just get my ticket to heaven punched. Um, and so, obviously, very, it's a, it's a, it's, in a way, it's a very childlike thing, but I don't think necessarily that's out of the realm of other, like, adults to think that, that kind of idea. It's like, I can have a free life, and then maybe at the very end, when it's all over, then I can kind of, like, be like, yeah, God, I, you know, whatever, I'll do your thing now. Um, and the truth is, when you look at, when you analyze that mentality more deeply, um, where I live the kind of life where I do everything on my own terms, um, that's me worshiping myself. I'm submitting myself. I'm following the authority of my own thoughts and emotions um, and desires. And the unfortunate reality is all those things can be incomplete and inconsistent and misleading at times. Um, so I, I, I say that I don't want, I'm not trying to communicate that we're totally untrustworthy people. We should never trust ourselves. Um, but at the same time, we're definitely not worthy of worship, I would say. Um, and so, and we, we honestly don't always know what's best for us, what really is the best life that we could live, the best things we could do with our lives. Um, and so, I have this, this, I've been thinking about this rhetorical, this, this question, like, what if a life of, of worship, of proskuneo unto God, what if that gives us the freedom and the contentment and the joy that we constantly crave and seek living a life for ourselves. I think it's, it's definitely, it's, it's counterintuitive. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's valuable to dig into why is that? Why, why does that seem, why, why would I say that? Why does that, why could that make any sense? Um, you know, uh, submitting to a higher authority and relinquishing control, they're very, you know, very similar, they, they, and they go hand in hand. This idea of proskuneo to anything other than ourselves, that would be what this requires, to submit, um, to submit to a higher authority and to relinquish control over our lives. And those are both very unattractive, unappealing things, especially for Americans. And I think what the barometer for that is that our biggest national holiday literally has the word independence in it. Like freedom, personal freedom, is so high of a value, and that's a great thing. That's not a bad thing, um, but I think it can be overextended as a value and often seeps into places where we don't realize how it seeps in. Um, and so willingly submitting to others, I think we, uh, most people feel some like rebellion and, and fear and t uh, anxiety at the thought of submitting ourselves to authority and letting go of control. And I think it's because we all know in, in our own lives, we've experienced how that sort of control and power can be abused. And that's because we live in a broken world. We, we relate with broken people. We relate with good people, but they're still not perfect. Um, and so we are so acutely aware of how badly power like that can be abused. Um, and so it, it, it really is wise to be wary of, of submitting ourselves to a human authority. Um, but conversely, there is one person who is trustworthy, who's totally trustworthy to devote ourselves to submit our lives and give control over to, and that's God. Um, I want to run through three, just three quick verses that'll be on the screens here that talk about 
how, how, much, how much more trustworthy God is than even ourselves. Um, Psalm 18.30 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. Isaiah 55.9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways. This is God speaking. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Uh, and then Romans 11.33 um, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Um, and so, you know, I think th those three verses are just a few in, you know, what you could, you could find a sea of verses that talk about the worthiness of God, the trustworthiness of God, the goodness, the benevolence in his character that never changes and how he is the only person who could ever be trusted to uh, be our, the authority over our lives, even more than ourselves. Um, and so this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure now the, you, the, a natural question would be, what does a life of this sort of worship look like? What does a life of proskuneo to God, what does that actually look like? Um, and last, last November, I think it was, I got to preach on Romans 12, we were, you know, still in our series on Romans, and this, this passage here in John 4 and Romans 12, those are my two foundational, like personally, my foundational texts for understanding what worship is, um, and so I'm just grateful to have been able to do that, and I think back then I talked, I, I had this question um, that the guy who started discipling me um, as a freshman in college, that this was a question that he um, always asked, and he, he encouraged us to always ask is, why do I do the things I do, and who do I do them for? Um, and I think if, if, the if we have this desire to live this life of proskuneo, um, which is difficult, it is not an easy life, um, asking this question is a really helpful uh, indicator. So, and, and it can be with literally the smallest things. It's like, why am, I, why am I going out to eat right now? Why am I going to hang out with this person right now? And if, and if you can narrow down the, the under, if you can be honest with yourself and identify your motivations as, um, you know, what God desires for fellowship and for enjoying the good things that he's made, you know, for being sacrificial and, and serving and um, all those things. Um, if you can start identifying there, then you know, like, okay, yeah, like, maybe it's not on the forefront of my mind, but yeah, this is what it means to live a life of worship. It's living as God intended. Um, and inversely, as you recognize where, like, yeah, like, honestly, I have selfish motives. Like, I want to just enjoy enjoy sneakers or enjoy enjoy watching the the you know Avengers for a fifth time or whatever it is, um, you know. Like if you realize, okay, like there's really is not a uh, there's no worshipfulness to this, then that's that's an opportunity. It's like maybe God is calling you to to give up something or to to choose something that's hard, um, and it can go in either direction. Um, at the end of the day. What really matters about, about worship is why we do it. It's, it. Why is the most important thing. Um, and so it, it, it might seem like this passage really goes straight into the what worship is and how to worship and who to worship. But I think it also we actually get to see, especially at the tail end, why we worship and why we worship God. Um, so I want to read uh, verses 25 and 26 again. Um, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And so 
what's happening here is Jesus is very plainly, very directly revealing himself to this woman who most people wouldn't give zero credibility to. They, I mean, a, ra- a Jewish rabbi would never even be seen talking to a woman like this. But he's here, and he's to, one of the few times that Jesus is very blunt about who he is and what he's doing. He says, I am the Messiah. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. I'm the one anointed by God to deliver to deliver humanity from the bondage of sin. Um, and so, l- actually, later, we, we didn't read these verses, but later on, I think it's, uh, yeah, verse 30, 39, uh, it says, John describes, many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Um, and you know what's crazy is, uh, so, we're in chapter 4, previous chapter, John 3, is where I would say inarguably is the most well-known passage of the Bible, John 3:16, which starts, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so for this woman, she, she knows her past, and it's a checkered past. Um, she knows her past, and she knows that, that Jesus knows it, that this man from God knows it, and yet she, uh, and God has revealed himself to her, and God has invited her into this life with him. Um, and, and it's, I, I want to read Psalm 139, actually. Um, Psalm 139, 1 through 4. Um, and I think hopefully you'll see why. I'm going to read this. So, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know where I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Um. I think when you read that, there's a lot of comfort there, but it's also terrifying, like, to think that God knows me better than I honestly know myself, and he knows the best parts of me and the worst parts of me, Um, and yet he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, his most precious possession, his son. Um, He gave up that because God is love, not because of what we have done or what we haven't done, not because of how we screwed up or how we've done well but because he is loving. Um, and I think, I, I, I mean, you know, maybe I'm not creative enough, but it, that to me is the greatest reason why, why God is worthy of our worship, of our life of worship, not just of these, these small acts here and there, but literally a life where our whole mentality is how can I live submitted unto God um, under his authority? It's because his love has no condition, even when even when I say, I, you know, my love is, I try to, like, live unconditionally. Um, I, I can't do it all the time. I really can't. Like, I have limits. <laughs> I think we all have limits. Um, and so, you know, that, that is so, out, one of the, just the most outstanding traits about who God is relative to who we are. Um, and so, you know, I think it's the unconditionality of God's love that that alone is worth abandoning the, the lives that we tend to live of self-worship or just worshiping something other than who God is. And, and in turn, living a, a life that is devoted, is submitted to um, um, God. Uh, I just thank you that you are, you are worthy. Um, that even in just your love for us, God, how immense that love is, um, how far your love takes you um, on our behalf. 
And uh, God, I, I pray that we never forget, God, that every day you would help us remember, um, that you would help us remember that, that this world is not as hopeless and as empty and, and as fleeting and frail as we often are tempted to despair to think, God. Um, God, I, I, I just thank you that um, you have given us your words, um, your word everlasting, that we can turn to your word and we can see that um, you have invited us into a life with you, a relationship with you, um, where we can live unto you both as our Father, God, and as our King. And so, uh, God, I just pray that now as we participate in this act, um, that we would do so um, in worship to you, God, in reverence and in devotion and gratitude. Um, God, I pray for anyone here who might be still struggling to, um, to, to hear the invitation and accept it, God. I pray that you would continue to just speak to them, that you would minister to them, that you would uh, meet them where they're at. Um, God, I am just grateful that you're personal like that, that since Jesus has died, God, you, you can, we can meet you um, directly. Nothing stands between us, God. And so um, I just I pray that you would uh, just speak your love and speak your, um, your, your open arms uh, to anyone who might need to hear that this morning. Um, so God, yeah, I just thank you that, um, that you are worthy, that you are trustworthy and true, God, um, that we can, follow, we can trust you in worship more than we can even trust ourselves. Um, so I just pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.